This is Pastor Scott Hidman from Clovis Hills Community Church, and you are listening to the Clovis Hills Podcast. You are about to hear from one of our teaching pastors here at Clovis Hills. I want to encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app where you can follow along with today's notes, submit a prayer request, or give to the ministry of this church. I hope today's message encourages you and draws you closer to the heart of God. I worked in this after-school program, and the the kids were... um, you know, there was like two adults, and we weren't really adults. I was 19, and the other, you know, a lot of times the other person that worked with me maybe might have been 20. And, um, you know, and they would put some, somewhere between 60 and 80 kids with these two 19-year-olds. And then they would tell every Wednesday was field trip day. So they, now, I worked for the, the city of San Marcos, California, Parks and Recs Department, and um, they didn't have a lot of money, so they said, hey, you're still going to do a field trip, but you're going to take all the kids on the city transit bus places. <laughs> Between 60 and 80 kids on the transit bus with two 19-year-olds, okay? I want you to think that through for a minute. That's a lawsuit waiting to happen. But anyways, can you imagine the bus driver too? Because we get, you know, 75 kids And we'd all put these fluorescent orange hats on them so we wouldn't lose them. And there'd be 75 kids waiting at the bus stop, like, to take the bus to the beach or to the fair or to the zoo, right? And could you imagine being the bus driver as you come around the corner and there's 75 kids with bright orange hats on? I'd just keep going. (laughs) I'd be like, I quit. (laughs) Just, Just keep going. So the poor bus driver. But we... This, there was this one kid, and um, he was, I don't remember his name, but for the sake of the story, we'll just say his name's Bobby. But he was, I remember him vividly because he was really naughty, okay? Um, just always in trouble, one of those little boys, right? And, um, and uh, those are my favorite, those, those ones, because I was that little boy. But anyways, and I'm still that little boy on stage sometimes, I know. But listen, he... He comes in, and his mom brings him in that morning, and we're going to the San Diego Wild Animal Park. 75 kids on the bus in the middle. Ridiculous, okay? His mom goes, okay, um, you know, Bobby is on some new meds this morning, so keep an eye on him, and let's see how they they work for him. I'm like, oh, great. (laughs) So here's what happened, though. Bobby's meds made him super listless. He was like stoned all day. And all day I'm like, come on, Bobby, come on. Bobby's like. <laughs> so he wasn't like a behavior problem, but I had to like drag him everywhere. So by the, by the time the day is over, we're on the transit bus. It's, you know, 3.30 in the afternoon. And I look over and Bobby is like <sighs> passed out asleep on some lady that he does not know. And just, you know, so I'm, you know, and I'm like, oh, well, at least he's not going to be a problem. Maybe these meds are good. Um, so we, we get off the bus and we, you know, we get back to the daycare center and we're calling roll and, it, you know, it's great. And, and, and we get to Bobby and I'm like, Bob, Bob, oh, no. I left Bobby on the bus. So I'm like, I, I, I look at the, this girl I work with and I go, I got bad news. And she's like, what? I go, brace yourself. We left Bobby on the bus. And she goes, what are we going to do? We're going to get fired. He's going to get kidnapped. I'm like, I'll be back. And I just ran out. I got my Volkswagen Rabbit, which dates me a little bit, and hit the pedal to the metal, tops out at 48 miles an hour. 
and found the bus on the bus route, passed it, barely. Get, I get to the, to the next stop and I'm so jacked. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so like freaked out. I'm standing there and, I'm, and the bus pulls past me and the back door opens. I don't even say anything. I just walk through the back door of the bus as someone's coming on and there's Bobby, dead asleep. And I just grab him, put him over my shoulder and walk off the bus and take him to my car. I can't imagine what everyone in the bus is like, huh, that was a kidnapping. Um, they didn't say anything. The bus driver must have been like, what just happened? Um, I put him in the car, I see, put the seatbelt on him, he's still asleep, we're driving back, he starts to wake up, I'm like, shh, back to sleep, Bobby. You know, he goes back to sleep again, I pick him up, I bring him back into the little daycare center, we lay him down on the cot. Bobby never knew he got left to this day, <laughs> nor his mom. And I am so grateful I don't remember his name, because maybe he's listening, but anyways. I, you know, I love kids. And uh, one of the things I love about this church is this church's heart for children. We, um, a couple years ago, we started a whole new program called Peer 456. And it blew up. It was awesome. And yeah, thank you all one person that enjoys Peer 456. <laughs> they all go to 11, the 1040 service, I guess. But anyways, um, so one of the cool things that's happened, though, is that that program is just kind of, exceeded its bandwidth, like it's too big. So uh, we're going to be starting a whole new program. We're dividing and conquering. That's what you do in, in, with children is you divide and conquer. So we're going to have a new program called the Island, right? So the Island is grades three and four, and the pier will be grades five and six, and we're kind of dividing them. And um, here, here's what I'm telling you right now. Some of you, I believe this with my whole heart, one of the greatest blessings that will happen in your life is when you step forward to make a difference in the life of a kid. And there's some third and fourth graders that'll remember you and your name their whole life because you planted Jesus in them. So I, I, I just want to encourage you. Be some of you need to be praying about serving in that. Um, I watched it happen in four, five, six, especially men. We have any men here? They're like, shh, he's trying to recruit me. <laughs> um, listen, men. I, I, I really want to challenge you. You can make an incredible difference in a child's life. Um, the church many times is void of men sowing into the next generation. And so go the men, so go our church. So maybe you pray about that. But anyways, today we're talking about, um, doesn't, uh, uh, it's a series we're starting called Mythbusters. And it's uh, a common myth that doesn't the Bible contradict Science doesn't Christianity and science they, they don't go well together they don't they don't fit and uh, I, I just want to let you know that is actually a common fallacy it, it is not not true at all now I did say last week um, in the uh, secular universities they have an incredibly higher proportion of atheists and agnostics that work in that field but I want you to know something in the field of science not academia but in the field of science the people that have faith. Um, the percentages look very similar to that of teachers, elementary school teachers, or firefighters, or police officers, or plumbers, on, on, and, on and 
on and on. Um, the science field is, has lots of people that are, that are Christians in it. And I, 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 want, I want to talk about that. So we're going to read from God's Word this morning. And I, I want to explain to you a little bit about what's going on. We're going to be reading from the book of Job. And if you don't know anything about the book of Job, let me explain it. The book of Job is really probably the oldest book in the Bible. It was probably the, the first written book in the Bible. And um, it doesn't go first because if you've ever read Genesis, it just makes more sense that Genesis would go first. But, but listen, Job is a, um, was, a, was a, a person, but the book of Job is, is written really in, in kind of this poetic form. And it's about a guy who had everything and he lost it all. And his three friends come, and they try and console him, and they sit with him, and they're trying to do the best they can. And um, you, ever, you ever tried to console someone, and then you just made it worse? Yeah, yeah, so that's what they did, basically. And, um, you know, they made it worse, and they're like, well, maybe you've sinned, or may, maybe God hates you. And, and then um, his, his wife is even more encouraging. She's like, look at you. You've lost everything. He has, like, boils all over his body. She's like, you're disgusting and your, your life is terrible, you should just curse God and die. Like, how's that for advice right there? I'm just here to counsel you, husband. Curse God and kill yourself. This is what's going on with Job. And Job has all these questions for God, and God is not scared of our questions. As a matter of fact, he wants us to, to lean into those. I was talking with Pastor Mitch this morning, and he even talked about it. He goes, you know, one of Jesus' last words on the cross was a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God's not afraid of our questions, but, but here, here's what happens is that God, at the end of Job, flips the script. He says, okay, you have all your questions. That's great. Let me ask you some questions, Job. And, it, and it's three chapters of God asking all these questions. We're going to read 14 verses of it from Job chapter 38. My friend Jeannie is going to come out and read from God's word. I'd love it if you're able to, if you can stand in honor of God's word. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So if you, if you have your outline, go ahead and pull it out, and I'm going to get right to number one on the outline. Uh, no, number one, one is this. Is, uh, there are plenty of intelligent people who believe in the Bible. 
That's a, that's a common fallacy. Uh, you know, uh, probably five, six years ago, there was a whole slew of uh, what they call the new atheists published the books that came out, and guys like Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion, and Dawkins is a uh, professor of, um, of science at, at Oxford or Cambridge, and, um, he, you know, he, he began to talk about not just like that he didn't believe in God, but he thought that belief in God was actually harmful to humanity, and um, that anyone that believed in God had thrown all intelligence out the window, all logic out the window, all of it. As, as a matter of fact, it, it wasn't like a passive onslaught of, of atheism. It was, it was a aggressive, like, hey, if you believe in God, you're not a thinking person. And, um, you know, I, I remember reading his book and thinking to myself, wow, um, God has a lot to say about Richard Dawkins. God loved Richard Dawkins, but God would also tell Richard Dawkins this, is that, hey, bro, you're a fool. And you may be like, wow, that's kind of harsh. Why would you say that, Pastor? Well, because it says in Psalm 14, 1, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. See, you can be really intelligent and still be a fool. How many of you have ever met someone that was really, really smart and was a straight up fool? Don't look at them right now, okay? Some of you are like, I am, you. Anyway, so... Here's what I want you to know. There are plenty of people within the, um, that, are, that are thinking people, like lots of thinking people that believe in God. I'm going to give you four or five just um, examples of people in science, chemistry, mathematics, physics that uh, are very prominent in this world, but they have a, a, a deep faith, a deep belief in God in the Bible. First one's this, uh, Francis Collins. He's pr- Collins is probably the most famous. He mapped the human genome, okay? He was in charge of mapping the human genome project, and um, he is a devout believer in Jesus. And um, he, even, he even said this, he said, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. The God can be found in the cathedral, or in the laboratory. See, because what Collins has understood is that um, when you're in awe of something, it's much easier to worship it. And as a scientist, he found very quickly just how complex the human body is, just how complex our DNA is, our RNA, our, our, just how we're put together and how well-designed we are. This next one, it's a guy named John Lennox. He's probably my favorite. Um, he's a professor of math and physics at Oxford, um, Australian guy. And um, he's, he says this, and I, I love this. He says, faith is not a leap in the dark. It's the exact opposite. It's a commitment based on evidence. It is irrational to reduce all faith to blind faith. See, that's what Dawkins was saying. Is that anyone who has faith, it's a blind faith and you're an idiot. And what, what, what this professor is saying is it's irrational to reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. That provides a very anti-intellectual and convenient way of invoid, avoiding intelligent discussion. See, the best way to avoid intelligent discussion is just throw bombs, right? And just, just you know, disregard something completely because then you don't have to uh, actually... Engage, engage in it. And that, that, that's what Dawkins is doing. Here's another one. I love this one. Um, her name is Catherine Blundell. She's a Brit- British astrophysicist um, at the University of Oxford in uh, supernumerary research. Her research investigates the physics of active galaxies such as quasars, 
and objects in the Milky Way, such as microquasars. Now, I know it's 9 a.m., and microquasars ours is a lot of syllables, and I don't even know what that is, but it sounds smart. So anyways, this next one, this dude blew my mind. I started reading up on this guy. His name is James Tour. Do we have a picture of James Tour? Yeah. Uh, professor of chemistry at Rice University, uh, where he also holds uh, faculty appointments in computer science and materials. He's recognized as one of the world's leading nano-engineers, which, okay. He gained his, P listen to this. He gained his PhD in synthetic, organic, and organ metallic chemistry from Purdue. Postdoctoral training, that, that means he got his PhD and he's like, ah, eh, not smart enough yet. Postdoctoral training in synthetic organic chemistry at the University of Wisconsin and Stanford. As an evangelical Christian, Tour has written this. Listen, this is cool. I build molecules for a living. Let's just pause right there for a minute. <laughs> I build molecules for a living. Think about that for a minute. He builds molecules. What do you do? Build molecules. What about you? Pastor. I build molecules for a living. I can't believe, begin to tell you how difficult that job is. I stand in awe of God because of what he has done through his creation. Only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. He builds molecules. But, you know, I guess science and faith don't really work together. This uh, next one, one, one more. It's, her name's Katherine Johnson. And uh, I thought this, this was a cool one because um, she was a space scientist, a physicist, a mathematician whose calculations um, of orbital mechanics... As a NASA employee, she was a rocket scientist. Let's let, you know, she's retired now. Um, they were critical to the success of the first manned uh, space flight, landing on the moon, all of those things. Uh, you know the movie Hidden Figures? It's about her. She goes to church every week, devout Christian, whatever. I guess thinking people can't be Christians. But anyways, here, here, here's, here's the problem. To, to think that science... And Christianity don't work together. Um, the, it's a common fallacy because the number two in your outline, guys, is that design always points to a designer. The closer you study the world we live in, the universe we live in, the bodies we have, the life that permeates this earth, the closer you look at it, the more we realize just how finely tuned everything is. And um, if I were to walk down the beach, and it's an argument called the divine watchmaker, but if I were to walk down the beach and I found a watch, I found this particular watch, I would pick it up and I would look at it and I would realize, oh, it's, it's, it's someone designed this. It says Samsung on it, which means it's actually better and more durable than the Apple watch. And <laughs> it was created two years before the Apple watch ever came out, Mark Middleberg. But anyways, um, if... If I found it, 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 it's obvious it was designed because it works and it, all the mechanisms that are in it come together to make it work. I would never look at it on the, on the shore of the beach and go, oh my gosh, how did that watch 
um, come into being, I, it, it must be that all the, all the um, components of it somehow got washed onto shore at the same time. In over six billion years, they came together and over a period of trial and error and trial and error and trial and error, we now have a smartwatch that Apple can copy. <laughs> See, so the, the truth of the matter is, um, when you look at the human body, and I, I believe actually um, we had Mark Middleberg and Lee Strobel here last year, and, and um, Mark Middleberg said it. He says, when you look at the watch on your wrist, you can tell it's designed. Well, just go another inch further and look at the complexity of the human wrist. There's a clear design in it. Anyone who's an engineer would look at it and go, oh. It's funny, um, Richard Dawkins uh, in, in one of his books, he talks about how like, oh, there's, you know, if God is the designer, it's poor design. You know, the human eye is a terrible design. And I think to myself as I was reading that, I'm like, really? So th this, this little blob of goo that's in my head right now somehow pick, grabs an image upside down, flips it in its brain, translate it in some kind of code through an ocular nerve to this giant blob called a brain. And all of a sudden through the ocular nerve and it hits the brain and the brain is able to process it in all the, all the colors of the rainbow. And then every shade after that, a couple hundred thousand shades, and we're able to see in full color and we're able to see all these things. But it's a poor design. And I thought as I was reading it, Richard Dawkins, how about you make your own freaking eye, bro? If it's such a poor design. And it's, it reminds me of the story, you know, um, there was a scientist and God and they were kind of riffing on each other. And the scientist said, listen, God, you did a good job with humans, but you know, we, we've come so much farther now. Science has taken us, we can do everything you can do. We can do it better even. Like we can clone human beings. We can, you know, create a baby in a test tube. We can, we can grow new appendages. I can grow an ear off of a mouse and put it back on a human. God, I've got all of these things that we've learned to do science and we don't really need you anymore. And God said, oh, is that true? Well, let's have a contest. You make a human, you make a man, and I'll make a man. And let's see which one's better. And the scientist said, you're on. Because, you know, I have a lab. It's way easier now. It's like we can do it cleanly. And, and God said, well, how about for old time's sake, because you're a scientist and you know the fundamental principle of the universe is the whole universe is uh, made from dust, right? We're, it's, it's all dust. So how about we use dust? We use dirt to make the man. And the scientist is like, you're on. Scientist kneels down, grabs a handful of dirt, and God says, hold on. Get your own dirt. Make your own dirt. See, that leads me to point number three, guys, is this. Science is awesome. You, you have to know this. There's, I, I'm not anti-science whatsoever. I, I love science. I'm like an amateur physicist. I love reading about science and all, all of those things. Science tells us how. But the scripture, the Bible, tells us why. And they're, they're, they're different functions altogether. You have to understand that. Um, science can tell you how something was made or 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 how it came to be, or how it is like this. But what it'll never tell you is why. Science can tell you how your body works. It's amazing how the human body works. But 
It'll never tell you why it works. And see, this, this is where God comes in because he, he is the, 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 the giant why. And um, Steve, you know, at the end of Job, you have to understand this. At the end of Job, God has asked all these questions. He's like, hey, Job, um, were you there when the, dawn, when, the, when the sun came up? Did, 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 did you make that happen? Hey, Job, were you there when the animals were created? Were you there when the universe was put into place? Were you there? By the way, here's the other thing about, I, I love science. It's, it's awesome because, because it's teaching us how. And, um, but, but science isn't always right either. It, it makes all kinds of mistakes. Sorry, I'm going on a rabbit trail for a minute because I need you to know this. It, you know, science makes all kinds of mistakes. Religion makes all kinds of mistakes. There's been Christians for years that, you know, um, let's be honest, the Crusades, that was an adventure in missing the point, right? Hey, we're gonna go kill you for Jesus. No, that's not what you do, right? The Inquisition, bad. There were Christians that tried to justify slavery with the Bible, um, on, on and on and on. There have been cr Christians that, that, that have um, really tried to oppress different groups, women, minorities, uh, sure. There's also been Christians on the other side fighting for all that as, as well. But I, I need you to understand something. But as, as flawed as the church is, science makes mistakes all the time. They never go back and go, sorry. I want you to think about this. In 1939, the intellectual elite on this planet lived in Northern Europe. The smartest people, the most sophisticated people, the people with the most education, which education is supposed to set us free, right? I want you to think about this. They sat around in 1939 drinking wine, listening to Wagner, reading Friedrich Nietzsche, and talking about how as humans we need to evolve and we need to clean our gene pool up so we can evolve to the superhuman. So if we're going to evolve to the superhuman, we need to get rid of the handicapped and the lesser races that have a dirty gene pool. Just think about that for a minute. No one ever looks back and goes, oh, no one from the science field goes, our bad. And some would say, well, that's philosophy, but it was philosophy based on, on science. That there is no God and that you were formed from an accident. And our only job is to just evolve higher. So science even now makes mistakes. You know, they, they, they just found out this week that the universe is expanding much quicker than they thought it was at 10%. As a matter of fact, what that means is the universe is, um, it's like a, a billion years younger than they thought it was. And then they did the calculations, and this is the crazy part. I was, re I was reading this this week, this week, is they did the calculations, and the calculations work both ways, that the universe isn't expanding faster, and it is expanding faster. And, and are you confused? Because all the physicists are too. They're like, we don't get it. We don't understand why. We think we have to make up new physics to make this work. But the fool says in his heart, there's no God. See, and in Job, at the end of Job, God's asked all these questions. Are you able to do this? Are you able to do this? Do you understand the rate the universe expands? You don't have to understand it all. It's okay, Job. And this is what God's, or Job says after God's asked all these questions in Job 42, 1 through 3. It says, then Job replied to the Lord. I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is that 
Who is, it, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? So re- really, I'm going to give you a much more simple translation of that. Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? He's saying, who's this that's asking all the stupid questions? And then Job says this. Surely it is I that spoke these things. I'll give you the Sean Beatty translation. God says, so who's this that's asking all the stupid questions? Job says, I'm asking the stupid questions. Sorry. I, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You know, there are things about this world and this universe that we will never know until we come into the presence of God. I, I don't know if you know, but in the Bible it talks about how we are um, made in God's image, but we're also broken so you were made like God, but, but that image has been broken. And the image that's in you is still beautiful, but it's broken, right? And um, it, it talks about in the book of Corinthians that the way we see the world, it says we see through a glass darkly. And let me explain to you what that, what that, what that means and give you a much more literal translation of what the Apostle Paul was trying to say in Corinthians. Is, um, he's saying, you know, we all have a lens that we see through, okay? And it's not like we see through sunglasses. That's not what he's talking about. He, when, when, he uses, when we translate it as we see through, through a glass darkly, what it means is, is we see through um, glass that is broken, that is shattered, that is smudged, that's got all kinds of stuff on it. It's, you know, it's like a mirror and you shatter the mirror and you still see an image in the mirror. But you don't see it clearly. You don't see it is for what it is. And then the Bible says this, that when Christ returns, when the perfect comes, we shall see clearly. And it's the same with the field of science. There's lots of things the field of science sees. And everything that it sees, if you look hard enough, it points to the glory of God. Jesus, as he rode into Jerusalem, they were all worshiping him. And the, 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 you know, the Pharisees came out and they're like, hey, Ixnay on the earthship way, Jesus. You know, the, 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 you're going to start a revolution here. The Romans are going to get mad. This is, is going to, you know, we, we can't be doing this. And he tells them, he says, I tell you this, that if they stopped worshiping me, the rocks would cry out. And here's what he was saying is that all creation worships me. All creation points to God. So there's no discrepancy. As a matter of fact, God, Jesus, is the secret sauce in science. Let me give you a great example. Stephen Hawking um, died last year, probably one of the, next to Albert Einstein, one of the most famous physicists who's ever lived. And he wrote a book called The Brief History uh, of Time. And it's a brilliant, uh, it was his greatest work, and it really uh, expounded on Einstein's theory of relativity. Brilliant man, um, died an atheist. He, he, at the end of his life, you know, he kind of went back and forth whether he believed in God or not. But at the, his very last book, he wrote, you know, I, I think the universe can exist without a God. Um, but it wasn't like a definitive statement. It was a, I think. And um, he, he died. But in his book, Brief History Before Time, his, his most famous work, at the very end of it, on page 190, he's taken this whole book, He's used all these mathematical equations and physics and science and all of that to, to help explain how time and space work. And then he says this. He asks this question. What is it that breathes fire 
into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. And really what he was asking, what he was saying is, I have all the math, I have all the facts, but what is it that brings life into this universe, that holds it all together? What is it that, that, that makes all of this work? There was a guy named Blaise Pascal who um, many believe might have been one of the smartest men in the last thousand years. Uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, at age three, his mother died, and um, his father could tell he was very bright, so he, his father decided he was going to personally educate Blaise. And um, he, you know, he grew very quickly in uh, mathematics and philosophy and uh, science and, and all of those things. And uh, by age 14, uh, he, you know, he was brilliant. He was already um, helping teach at the university. Um, he was just this savant, right? And um, he got in an argument with his dad at age 14, which, you know, 14-year-olds never argue with their parents, Right? No, they're usually very subservient and they don't, they don't have opinions or anything, right? He gets in an argument with his dad. His dad sends him to his room. So Blaise Pascal goes to his room and he locks himself in his room. And for a day and a half, he locks himself in his room. And when he comes out, he's developed several principles that we still use today for calculus. The dude invented calculus at 14. Okay, last night they were way more impressed with that. You guys are like, so... I have a smartphone. I don't need to do calculus. Um, he went on. He only lived 39 years. But he went on to um, invent things like the calculator. Uh, in the 1600s, he invented a calculator, guys. The syringe. The first public transit system. On and on and on. All of these things. He's just a freak. And um, it, in... in his father got really sick, and Blaze had a crisis in his life. And he had never really cared much about God, didn't care about any, of, any faith or anything like that. But because his father was sick, he turned to God, and um, he made really what it was was an intellectual conversion. He was a very smart guy, and he just said, well, I can see there's so much design in the world. There's so much design in mathematics, the way all of this works. There must be a God, therefore I believe. And I believe in Jesus and um, that happens, though. I find all the time people turn to God when there's trial, trauma, and transition in their life. And when those things hit, they turn to God. But here's what happened. Uh, Pascal's father died. And because he died, Blaze kind of wiped his hands of God and backed away again. And went into a life of wild living, you know, just kind of living it up. Not like scientist style, but like Vegas style, okay? And... Um, it wasn't until, and he did that for a few years. He worked on his testimony. And then um, he did. He was working on his testimony. He was building all, doing all kinds of sinning just to show how good God's grace is. And the last five years of his life, he didn't know he was going to die, but he was, uh, it was, he was preparing for bed. It was 1030 at night. And he was in his closet changing, and he had an encounter with God. And we don't fully know what it is, but he wrote about it in his diary that he, was, he thought it was a few minutes, and he was in there for two and a half hours. And when he got out of that closet, he was changed. Because he had made an intellectual conversion, like, yeah, I think I believe that. That makes sense. But then he met God later. 
And he met God, and when he came out of that closet, um, literally came out of the closet as a Christian and said, I believe in Jesus, and he wrote this poem down. He jotted it down as he came out of this closet. And I, I just want to read you a part of it. And he dated it. It says, Monday, the 23rd of November, about half past 10 at night until half past midnight. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and everything in it except God. For he is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. The grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. And it goes on. And he wrote this poem down and he actually sewed it into the inside of his jacket pocket. So that every day when he pulled his glasses out, he would be reminded of the day he met See, because here's what happens. You can give an intellectual assent to God, and you can say, yeah, there must be a designer. I believe, I believe there's a God. But at some point, you have to meet him. You have to have a relationship with the eternal God. The Bible says this, that every human, whether you believe in God or not, is separated from him by their sin. And, and, and be, because of that, we will spend eternity apart from God because of our sin. Every, every human, but, but God who loved you so much, he knew that and he sent his son Jesus Christ to come and live a perfect life in your place, a sin-free life in your place and die as a sacrifice of atonement for you. And the Bible says this, that whoever believes in him, whoever, it, do, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, as long as you believe in him, the Bible says you'll have eternal life. Jesus said it very clearly. He said, he said he stands at the door and he knocks at the door of your heart waiting for you to come in. And see, God, I mean, we can ask God all the questions we want. And God is not scared of your questions. But I, I want you to know something. God has questions for you too. He says, how has your way been working? He goes, I made you for a purpose, but I love you so much. I've given you the freedom to live your life however you want. And you can go my way, the way of grace, or you can go your own way. And the question I have for you is, how's that been working for you? God also asks the question, Sean, what will happen to you at the end of your life? And then the final question God always asks is, will you accept the gift I give you of eternal life? Will you accept my grace, my love? Will you turn your heart from going your way and you being in charge and turn it toward me? John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, that when you receive him, that's when your sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what other Christians have said about you. That's what the Bible says. 
But as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And that could be you today. I would, I'm gonna pray a prayer in a minute, but you know, just as Pascal sewed that poem into his jacket to remind him of the moment he met God, um, we have moments like that here. You know, whenever someone comes to faith at Cobus Hills, we give them a bulb and a Bible, and we have their name engraved in gold leaf on the Bible. And it's just symbolic. It's symbolic of what, what the Bible teaches is that when you put your faith in Jesus, your name is now written in the book of life. And, and you can't erase this. It, it doesn't come off. Just like you can never be erased from that book. And, and, and then symbolically, the other thing we do is we give you a bulb. And the bulb represents the light of Jesus living in you now. And you take that bulb and you can screw it into the Jesus' life and light sign. And... Um, by the way, you might want to come back next week because we're going to unveil the other part of the sign. But listen. You take it and you screw it in. It's a way for you to mark the day. That on, on April 28th, I heard from God. And maybe it was 10.30 a.m. instead of p.m. I don't know. But I heard from God. And then there's one other way that we, we kind of mark those moments. And Christians have been doing this one for 2,000 years. Is after, after you've made that decision to follow Jesus, that your next step of obedience, the easiest thing to do, is to jump into the waters of baptism. Is to get baptized. And we're going to be baptizing a slew of people on June 9th on Pentecost Sunday. And maybe for you, the decision you have to make today is, am I going to take that next step of a faith and obey him and get dunked? For some of you, is do I believe? Can I open my heart to him? For some of you, you believe, but God's calling you higher into higher levels of obedience. Into deeper levels of his love and his goodness. Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Hey, I encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app on your phone. With the app, you can do all kinds of things like prayer requests, live notes, giving. I also encourage you to check out our uh, Facebook Live page if, if you want to watch online. You can come to our services live. They're Saturday nights at 6 o'clock, Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast.